is an amazing privilege, amazing privilege for me to be with you. My wife and I are on the back end of a couple of weeks of travel. And when your pastor contacted me several months ago and asked if we would come to the Colonial Baptist Church, he told me a little bit about his background and found out the connection through Tennessee Temple and Dallas Theological Seminary. It took me all of about um, three seconds to decide to say yes. And so we flew in yesterday from New York and drove past this amazing, amazing facility here that God has given you. Would you open your copy of the Word of God to Luke chapter 12? Luke chapter 12. Now, the moment I start reading my text, you're going to say, I've heard this before, and you have. This is a story Jesus told. You've heard sermons on it. You've read it. Maybe today, God will give us something new. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. And Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with everyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. I don't get it. I don't understand this story. Tell me, what did this man do wrong? What did he do wrong? I don't get it. Read the story a hundred times and tell me, what did he do wrong? I submit to you, this man did exactly what we want a man to do. He picked a profession. He decided to be a farmer. He bought some land. He bought some seed. He planted his seed. The crops came up. He did well. He sold his crops. He made some money. He bought some more land. He increased his holdings. He did well. In fact, he was so successful that he had so much at the end of the harvest, he didn't know what to do with it. What did this man do wrong? There is no hint in the story that he was a cheat. Jesus does not imply 
that this man was doing anything illegal, unethical, or immoral. He wasn't a scoundrel. He wasn't cheating his friends. He wasn't uh, cheating other farmers. He wasn't rigging the prices in the market. He just did exactly what a farmer is supposed to do. He was successful. He made money. He had a surplus. Let me put it to you this way. If this man came to any of our churches, we'd probably make him chairman of the elder board. Because we're always looking for successful business people. Tell me, what did this man do wrong? Okay, the Bible says he was a farmer. That's a noble and necessary profession. I suppose that in our day of big cities and education and culture and high technology, most of us don't think about it. But do we understand that if the farmers didn't do their job, we wouldn't have anything to eat? Now, I've spent nearly all my ministerial career, so to speak, in big cities. Los Angeles, in Dallas, and most recently for almost 17 years in Chicago. So I've been in and around the big cities. But for the last almost three years, my wife and I have lived in Tupelo, Mississippi. That, my friends, is farming territory. Now I have come to a new appreciation of farming. I mean, down there in Mississippi, we grow beans and we grow, uh, we grow corn and we grow a lot of cotton and soybeans and little rice down there in the Mississippi Delta. We've got hogs and we've got sheep and we've got cattle. I mean, you name it, we grow it in the state of Mississippi. And by the way, speaking of catfish, which we weren't, but did you know, <laughs> did you know that 40% of all the catfish in America are grown in the state of Mississippi. Farming is a noble profession. It's noble and it's necessary. And did you know, have you thought about how hard it is to be a farmer and make any money today? You're going to be a farmer? Well, you got to know about seeds. You got to know about the soil. You gotta be a meteorologist. You gotta be an agronomist. You gotta be an entomologist. You gotta know about the bugs. You gotta know about how to get rid of the bugs. You gotta know about the pesticides. You gotta be a financier. You gotta understand the markets. You gotta know the futures markets. You gotta know when to plant. You gotta look to the sky. You gotta pull up weather bug. You gotta study when the when the wind is coming and when the when the rains are coming. And you gotta get on your knees and pray that you get enough water, but not too much water. You get enough wind, but not too much. You gotta know how to hire the right people. You gotta be able to manage people. Uh, you gotta be able to juggle a hundred things at once. Which is why in Mississippi, as in most of the farming areas of America. The day of the old family farm is almost gone. Now, it's true in Mississippi. 
we still have some fourth and fifth generation farms. But you know what? In Mississippi, and I suspect it's true here in North Carolina as well, there are kids who grow up on the farms and they see how hard their mother and their father have to work from sunup till sundown. It's 24-7. It's 365. It's 52 weeks out of the year. And they say to themselves, I believe I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a degree and I'm going to go to the big city. I'm going to find an easier way to make a living. And so they go to Birmingham or they go to Atlanta or they go to Memphis or they go to Chicago or they go to Denver or maybe they go to Charlotte. They go to some big city and it ends up that mom and dad sell the family farm to one of these great big cooperative firms that has these massive farms because it's just difficult today to be a farmer and make any money. Well, here's something else. If you're going to be a farmer, you've got to be stubborn. You've got to be hard-headed. I mean, if you're not stubborn and if you're not hard-headed, you won't be a farmer very long because it's just too hard. I said that in a church outside Columbus, Ohio. Nice-looking young man came up to me, and he said, You know what you said about farmers being tough-minded and stubborn and hard-headed? I said, Yeah. He said, My daddy was a farmer, and he was stubborn and hard-headed. I said, Was he a good farmer? He said, Yes, he was. You know, I was uh, in Tupelo not so long ago, and I was listening to these two guys talk. I mean, they're older gentlemen, 65 or 70, and... Uh, one of them said to the other, he said, yeah, I just put my onions in. And the other guy said, how are your onions doing? He said, no good, no good. Can't get enough water. You know, just, you talk to a farmer. Farmer never has anything good to say. Too much rain, not enough rain, can't get good help, doesn't have enough money, can't get good rates from the bank. I mean, nothing's ever working out Right. You may be saying right now, is all this you're saying, does it possibly have anything to do with this text in the Bible? <laughs> yeah, it does. I just hadn't gotten there yet. You know what our problem is with this story? We know the end of it. Because we know the end of it we don't think about it very much. We don't really pay attention to what Jesus is saying. What I'm pointing out to you is, this man was a good man. He was a hardworking man. He was an honest man. He did something that even today, after 2,000 years, is very difficult to do. He was a farmer who made a lot of money. And let me tell you something. If you see a farmer who's made a lot of money, you know a couple of things are true. You know he must love the land. 
You know he must get up early and he must stay up late. You know he must have the gift of perseverance. You know he must be stubborn and hard-headed. And you know he must have been blessed by God. Because there are so many people who lose money in farming today. When you find a guy who's made some money and he's done it honestly, then you ought to stand back and you ought to just take off your hat and you ought to give the man his due because it's hard to make money as a farmer. Now back to the text. What was this man's problem? He had a good problem. It's not a bad problem. He had a really good problem to have. He was too successful. His success outstripped his capacity. That's why he wanted to buy more land and build more buildings and Add some more silos. His success outstripped his capacity. And so, he thought to himself, I'm going to expand. Which is exactly what many of you have done in your own businesses and in your own career. You start a law office and you win a few cases and you add some people and you add some office space. You know, you, you start a little store and you, and you sell a lot. And, and you make some money. And so you think we're going to knock out this wall and we're going to knock out that wall. Or you're a developer and you borrow some money and you, and you build some homes and you sell them. That's probably not a good illustration in today's economy. But yeah, when the economy is good, you, 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 you sell the homes and you think, I'm going to do this again and I'm going to do this again. And you get into the market and you make some money and you think, I'm going to reinvest in the market and make more money. There is nothing wrong with that. That leads me to say this. In my Bible, this is called the parable of the rich fool. The parable of the rich fool. But listen carefully to what I am about to say. This man was a fool. But he was not a fool because he was rich. Far as I can tell, foolishness seems to be evenly spread along the human spectrum. I've met poor people who were fools and middle class people who were fools. So when we call this the parable of the rich fool, do not think to yourself, that Jesus is criticizing this man because he was successful and because he made some money. That's not the point of the story. Because if you think that's the point of the story, you'll always think this applies to someone else who's got more money than you have. This parable is not about your money. This parable is all about your heart. And because it's all about your heart, that makes it extremely tricky. Extremely tricky. It was Elizabeth Elliot, in one of her books, who said that the process of Christian growth is the process by which God removes the idols from our heart one by one by one. It's not how much you have. 
It's what you do with what you have. It's how you think about what you have. My wife and I, in recent years, have had occasion to ponder this a number of different ways. You know, basically, if you live long enough, there are only two phases of life. There's the accumulation phase, and there's the de-accumulation phase. You spend most of your life trying to get stuff, money and the stuff that money can buy. But if you live long enough, you, you reach the peak, wherever that is, and you begin to go down the other side, and you start to divest yourself of all the things that you thought were so important. So, three years ago, my wife and I moved from Chicago, Illinois, to a cabin in the woods, the end of a gravel road, behind a cattle gate, next to a 17-acre lake, deep in the woods, nine miles north of Tupelo, Mississippi. And because we are now empty nesters, we are deep into the de-accumulation phase of life. We are finding out more and more what we no longer need that we used to think we had to have. When the time came for us to move from Chicago down to Mississippi, we did what couples always do. We, uh, we started giving stuff away. We gave away everything we could give away. And since the boys had already moved out of the house, we gave away a lot of their stuff too. And what we couldn't give away, we threw away. I had a teacher in college who told us that every time you move, you lose 20% of what you own. You just lose it outright or you break it. You lose 20% every time you move. Well, we've moved from, from Dallas, Texas to Midlothian, Texas to Downey, California back to Garland, Texas, to North Oak Park, to Central Oak Park, to north of Tupelo, to Tupelo in the city where we live. Now that's eight times. We've lost 160% of everything we ever owned. And three years ago, when the time came to move, we just gave away almost everything. The only thing we had left was stuff from our kitchen, a dining room table, and a couple of uh, dressers, and the king-size bed. That was about it. That plus we had my books. And just before we left Chicago, my wife said to me, Honey, what are we going to do about all those books? It wasn't a question. It was more of a declarative statement, if you know what I mean. I mean, we had given away everything and thrown away everything, but I had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books because pastors feel better when they have a lot of books. It's just like <laughs> Pastor Davey said. You know, if five books are good, ten books are better. 
And if you've got 20, your sermon will be twice as good as if you only have 10. And in my church office up in Chicago, the walls were lined with books. It was very impressive. And people would come in and they would say, they often said, have you read all these books? And the answer was always, I have read parts of all of these books. And when the time came for us to move from Chicago down to Tupelo, I started looking at those books and I realized something unusual, that, that some of those books were books I had purchased when I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary a thousand years ago, and I had lugged them with me out to California in the late 70s and back to Garland, Texas in the early 80s, and then to Oak Park, Illinois through the 90s and into the 2000s. And some of those books I hadn't looked at in almost 30 years. And I needed every one of them. (laughs) I couldn't live without them. And so I threw away as many as I could, like six or seven or eight of them, and still had thousands of books left. And when the time came to move, over half of the moving truck was nothing but my books. Because we could do without everything else, but my books we had to have. And when we moved down to Mississippi, We lived in a little cabin in the woods, and there was no room for my books. So you know what we did with my books? We unloaded them in an an unheated and unair-conditioned lodge on the other side of the lake where they were exposed to the heat and the humidity, which is incredibly thick in Mississippi, and the dirt toppers and the fleas and the mosquitoes and the coyotes and all the stuff, the critters we've got over there. We just, we just stacked them over there. And ladies and gentlemen, three years later, do you know where all my books are? No, they're not in the trash. They're in the lodge on the other side of the lake. And now they smell like they're 150 years old. And in the three years since we've moved, you know how many times I've been over there to get books? I can count on the fingers, both hands, the number of times that I've been over there to get books from the lodge on the other side of the lake. And you say, what are you trying to say? I am trying to say this, that that which I thought I couldn't live without, I now realize, wasn't all that important anyway. And a year ago, we moved from the cabin in the woods to, uh, to the heart of Tupelo. It's not a big city, but such as it is. Right by the airport to a nice home that's the smallest home we've ever lived in. It's kind of cute. But it's really small. It's snug for Marlene and me. And there's not much room for anything else. We've got a couple of bedrooms when our boys, and uh, they bring their wives home for a visit. But when they do, when it's them plus their wives plus our two basset hounds, it's kind of crowded in there. There's no room for my books. And you know what happened to my books when we moved from the cabin in the woods into Tupelo, Mississippi? We left them in the lodge on the other side of the lake where they are mildewing. 
And I was out there a couple of weeks ago and I opened a box and I saw the dirt daubers have built a nest inside the box of my, boxes of my books because I haven't been out there very much. Psalm 131 says, I have calmed and quietened my soul like a weaned child on its mother's breast. I have calmed and quietened my soul. What's a weaned child? That's a baby who once thought he couldn't do without something. And now he knows he can do without it just fine. You know what the process of life is all about, at least from one perspective? It's learning the things we can do without. Back to the story for a moment. I find it hard to criticize this man. He did well. He worked hard. He was very successful. He made a lot of money. He was so successful, he couldn't take care of all that he had. Now I asked myself, why did Jesus use such harsh terms, thou fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. Remember again, I'm telling you this now for the second time. This man was a fool, but he was not a fool because he was rich. He was not a fool because he had money. He was not a fool because he worked hard. He was not a fool because he was successful. He was a fool because he forgot he was going to die someday. He thought he was going to live forever. And of all the mistakes to make, that may be the most critical of all. To think you're going to be here forever and to forget that one day, one day, they're going to carry you out in a box and put you in a hole in the ground. An old Italian proverb says, the last robe has no pockets. Billy Graham has often said, I've never seen a Brinks truck following a hearse. Whenever a rich man dies, we all ask the same question. How much did he leave? The answer is always the same. He left all of it. All of it. Not long ago, I spent some time with Harry Balbeck, co-founder with Jack Wurtson of Word of Life, the great international youth ministry. Harry started with Jack back in 1941, working together when Harry was only 16 years old. He worked with Jack for over 60 years until Jack finally died and went to heaven. Harry told me something interesting. He said, he said, I've been collecting all the memorabilia from Jack Wordson's life, all of his letters and all of his pictures and all of his correspondence and all the, all the stuff from the great, tremendous life that Jack Wordson lived. And he said, I got a great big stack of memorabilia from Jack Wordson. And then he said, I've been doing the same thing for my aunt 
who just recently died. And he said, her stuff is only about this thick. And Jack Wurtzen's is about this thick. And then he said, but they're both gone. Rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief, death, plays no favorites. It plays no favorites. Do you want an application from my sermon? Here it is in one sentence. Hold lightly what you value greatly. Because it isn't yours anyway. Hold lightly what you value greatly because it isn't yours anyway. I learned this the hard way a little over 20 years ago when I was riding high, when I was on top of the world, and everything was good. One day, the wife of one of the leaders came to see me. And she sat down and she looked at me and she said, Ray, you're holding on too hard. Have you ever had anybody say something to you and you knew from the first word exactly what they were going to say and you didn't want to hear it. Ray, you're holding on too hard. And it was like, Ugh! right in the gut. I knew exactly what she meant. I was. I was holding on to something too hard. And you know what the bizarre thing is? The thing I was holding on to was not something bad. Not something evil, not something morally wrong. It was something good and honorable and pleasing to the Lord. And I was holding on to it so hard and so tight that it had become an idol in my life. Do you know what an idol is? An idol is anything good that becomes too important. Anything good in your life that you hold on to for ultimate meaning and ultimate significance in your life. And when that woman said, Ray, you're holding on too tightly, I knew she was telling me the truth. And so I did what pastors always do in that circumstance. I mumbled. I prayed. I thanked her. And I got her out of my office as quickly as I could. And I knew she was telling me the truth. One year later, through a series of very sad circumstances, my carefully constructed life, and my career, and my ministry started to crumble. And there wasn't anything I could do about it. In one of his books, Watchman Nee tells the following story. He said, when we are, when we are children, we say to God, oh God, would you bless me? 
And we hold out our empty hands to God. And God, because He is kind and good and gracious, He fills our hands with every good thing. He gives us life and health and friends. And He gives us a job. And He, and, and he gives us relationships. And, and, and eventually He may give us a husband and, and a, or a wife. And He gives us children. And He gives us a home to live in. And he, and he overflows our hands with every blessing from above because He is a good and kind God. And when our hands are filled to overflowing with blessing, then God says to us, my child, reach out your hand to mine and put your hand in mine that we may have fellowship together. And we look up at God and we say, Oh God, I, I want to. I want to. But I can't. My hands are too full. I can't. And God says, Put those blessings aside and reach out your hand and put your hand in mine. And we say, Lord, no, I cannot put aside these things. This is what my life is all about. And God says, but I am the one who gave you all that you have. Put it aside and reach out your hand and put your hand in mine that we may have fellowship together. And we say, no, 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 no. And God says, you must and you will. And here's what God did. That thing I was holding on to, not a bad thing, a good thing. He began to pry my fingers off of it one by one by one. And when he got down to the thumb, I fought back. I fought back as hard as I could. But as the man said, your arms are too short to box with God. And little by little, God pried my finger off that thing, that good thing. And he took back that which had always belonged to him in the first place. And oh, it hurt. Oh, it hurt. And I remember one Sunday after church, walking through our neighborhood and a verse of scripture came to my mind first peter 4:19. let those who suffer according to the will of god commit their souls to the faithful creator and continue to do good and it was that little phrase according to the will of god according to the will of god according to the will of god and just like that i realized that it had been years since i had even thought about doing the will of God. I had been so immersed in the ministry, I hadn't even thought about doing God's will. And that which had been the passion of my life in earlier years had almost disappeared. And it was as if God said to me, I took this away, Ray, so that now you could do my will. And I remember walking down the street opening and closing my hand like this and saying, Lord, it all belongs to you. What a hard lesson for all of us to learn. Hold lightly what you value greatly because it doesn't belong to you anyway. And I have come to the conviction that God 
orchestrates the affairs of life, the good, the bad, the happy, the sad, the positive and the negative. He orchestrates all of it to bring us to the place where we will finally let go of the things that we are holding on to so tightly and say, Lord, it all belongs to you. He brings us to the place where we have empty hands and our trust is in him alone. And you know how he does it? He takes away our possessions, which can be replaced. He takes away some relationships, which may or may not be replaced. He takes away our loved ones, who can never be replaced. And in the end, He takes away life itself. So in the end, it's the way it was in the beginning. It's just us and God. I bear testimony to you that I only dimly understand what I'm preaching about. I'm 55 years old. Here's my wife. We have three sons. Two of them are married. We have our health. But I at least have come to understand every blessing I have comes from Him. He can take them back any time he wants and i'll bet you there's some people here today who are struggling struggling and what you are holding on to is not something bad it is not evil it is not wrong but it is an idol nonetheless because it has become of overwhelming importance in your life you will never be happy You will never be truly happy until you finally say, Lord, that thing which is so important to me, you gave it to me. You can take it back anytime you want. I can't spare you the pain or the suffering. But I can say this, the happiest people in the world are the people who hold lightly what they value greatly because it all belongs to God anyway. A final word, a final comment, and I'm done. Final word. For the third time, the parable of the rich fool. He was a fool, not Because he was rich, but because he forgot that he was going to die someday. And everything he had would be left behind. You want the application? Let's make it simple. That man was a fool. Don't be a fool. That's why Jesus told the story. Don't be a fool. Hold lightly what you value greatly. It all belongs to God anyway. Let's pray. Father, your word is true and clear. And our problem is not in understanding what you have said. It's that all of us hold on to good things. We hold on so tightly. 
Lord, without you, we'll never let go. Without your grace and kindness to us, we'll make the same foolish mistake. So, Lord, by your grace and your goodness and your kindness, enable us to trust you enough to let go of the things that mean so much to us. Help us to hold lightly what we value greatly because it all belongs to you anyway. In Jesus' name, amen. 